everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. It's a terrible world that we live in, but uh, luckily, hopefully, we can provide you with a good show to break down that terrible world and process it and analyze it. So welcome to this show. I'm Katie Halper, and we have a wonderful show for you today. We are going to be talking to two guests. Our first guest is Ahmed Chwaij, who is a journalist and also former doctor. And then we're going to be joined in the second half of the show by Muin Rabani, a Palestinian analyst. So before we start, though, of course, please do like this stream. Give it a thumbs up. That's a really easy way to show your support and also to get the word out because it helps the algorithm. Also, please subscribe. We're almost at 150K subscribers, which is great. And we already have a bunch of people who have liked, so I've trained you well. Thanks for that. If you can, of course, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you get to support the show. If you pay $1 a month, you just really get to make the show happen. We couldn't do the show without the support of viewers like you, as corny as that sounds. It's absolutely true. If you pay $5 a month, then you get paywalled uh, material. We've been doing less paywalling because this is such an urgent topic and a question of life and death. But we do do some Patreon-only segments, sometimes because we have to, because we will get removed from YouTube. So last week's uh, show, we have some great Patreon-only discussion with Susan Abu Halwa about Hamas. We'll also have some Patreon coming through the pike uh, where I have a debate with a rabbi, an anti-Zionist rabbi. Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro, and there'll probably be some Patreon-only stuff tonight. And I appreciate all the Patreons and the fact that you've been patient with the content, because again, we want to make sure that everyone gets this information, because this is a time of a lot of propaganda, and that means uh, war. When you're talking about war propaganda, that means life and death. So I'm going to bring on our first guest. Let me just introduce you to him. Ahmed Twaij is an independent freelance journalist. His work has been published in numerous outlets, including The Independent, The Guardian, New York Times, Vice, BBC, and many more. His work has taken him across the US, UK, Europe, and the Middle East. He also holds a bachelor's degree in medical humanities. After working as a doctor in London for a number of years, Ahmed began volunteering abroad, namely helping with the refugee crisis across Europe, where he developed his desire for storytelling. This passion drove Ahmed to pursue a master's degree in conflict security and development with Global Health. He's also produced and directed a number of videos for which he has been nominated for awards as well as podcasts. His photography has been featured in various exhibitions across the globe. And we're going to be talking about all of this with him. So welcome to the show, Ahmed. Thanks for having me, Katie. Of course. Thank you for joining all the way from London. And uh, you're someone who I'm really looking forward to talking to. You've been on the show in the past, and it's always a really informative discussion. But part of the reason I'm so excited to talk to you is because as a doctor, you have an interesting, I'd say, perspective on a lot of what's happened recently, especially in terms of Israel's treatment of hospitals and targeting of hospitals. And also as someone whose family is from Iraq and someone who has been in Iraq, 
you know a little bit what the effects of ISIS has been. And so you're able to write this piece that you wrote, basically arguing that Hamas is not ISIS. And a little bit of behind the, the, the curtain stuff, I noticed that you wrote this piece at a venue that looks very cool. Um, it's a place called the Marcaz Review, but it described itself as a literature and arts publication. I noticed that you wrote this piece there, not at like NBC or at Al Jazeera, where you often write. So before we get into the piece, which is Gaza versus Mosul from a medical and humanitarian standpoint, can you tell us how you shop the piece around? Yeah. Um, firstly, like before I begin, I just want to say like it's difficult to really even talk about these issues um, in general because of how some of these atrocities that we're seeing, like it's just so horrific. Some of the the things that we're witnessing every night. So as wonderful as it is to be here, I don't know if I could describe this as being wonderful to have to discuss. Um, but in terms of this piece, to get it out there, I had to um, really like try shop it around. Like I, for me, I felt really passionate about this story because the number of times that this is being compared, you know, Hamas is ISIS and, you know, there's this whole horrible organization that we must wipe out a whole neighborhood for, a whole district for. Um, and I felt passionate about trying to get it out. And I shopped it around the usual people I write for from, you know, some of the well-known outlets. And a lot of them turned around and said no. And I think, to be honest with you, over the last couple of months, trying to publish anything about the issue in Palestine has come with a lot of rejection along the way. So it has been very difficult to talk about. And we've witnessed this a number of times. You know, Mehdi Hassan's show, for example, just got shelved on NBC straight after his interview with Mark Regev. Other examples, you see the ones in Hollywood, for example, um, actors and actresses are being shelved from films just because they spoke pro-Palestinian causes. You know, if you call it a genocide, that's it, you act from a movie. And it's just happening so often. And me as a journalist trying to get work out there, that's happening the same thing. And thankfully, the Marcus Review, a great outlet, will now, you know, I've got a, developed a great relationship with, we're willing to take this piece on and, you know, have an honest discussion about some of the issues I wanted to talk about. So uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot of conflation, a lot of comparison between ISIS and Hamas. There's a hashtag, which is uh, hashtag Hamas is ISIS. We also have a video clip that we're going to show. And this is not surprisingly Benjamin um, Netanyahu making the case that Hamas is ISIS. And uh, here he is. This is shortly after uh, October 7th. We'll see him. Uh, he's on stage with the lovely Anthony Blinken. President Biden was absolutely correct in calling this sheer evil. Hamas is ISIS. And just as ISIS was crushed, so too will Hamas be crushed. And Hamas should be treated exactly the way ISIS was treated. They should be spit out from the community of nations. No leader should meet them. No country should harbor them. And those that do should be sanctioned. So what is your response to that uh, as someone who has spent time in Iraq? I think like there's a, a uh, conceited effort by people like Netanyahu and uh, within Israel and even some American uh, diplomats to try to conflate the two, Hamas and ISIS, and it's quite clear what the reason is. One of the other things that Netanyahu says, for example, is he says Europe is going to be next, right? As if, you know, us as Europeans, we should be worried that Hamas is going to be coming to our shores and attack us. And obviously that brings echoes of what ISIS did 
attacks in Paris, the attacks in London, etc., etc. So people start getting that worry. And with those attacks that happened, for example, when the refugee crisis happened, people were willing to call them, you know, a swarm of refugees and therefore dehumanize these refugees and no longer want to give aid, etc. So once you dehumanize this group as being something so vicious as ISIS, who were so barbaric that they were willing to kill anyone and anything that disagreed with them, you've dehumanized an entire population. So you've dehumanized the Palestinians. You make it actually palatable for a Western audience to be like, actually, if they're like ISIS, then we should be destroying them. We should be destroying every anyone affiliated with them. And it makes it acceptable for us to see those bombs dropping in Gaza, where in reality, what, what the, 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 the differences between the two are quite significant. Hamas has this ideology rooted in Palestinian nationalism as a resistance movement. Yes, it's an Islamist resistance movement, but it's a resistance movement and very nationalistic. It doesn't cross the border. It doesn't go into international territories. It doesn't, go to, it doesn't even go to neighboring countries like Lebanon. ISIS was a transnational takfirism ideology. And by that, I mean the concept of takfirism is where they believe anyone who doesn't believe in what they believe is a kafir, which translates to mean infidel. And anyone who's a kafir, therefore, is paramount to be killed, or someone who's going to be killed. Hamas isn't like that, in reality. Christians live in Gaza. They have churches, they go to church, they celebrate Christmas, etc., openly. ISIS, as we, if, if you remember, when they would first came out, they would put the letter N, which stands for Nasr in Arabic, on the doors of Christian homes to highlight who to target as Christians. So the difference, uh, difference is... So what does N stand for? It stands for Nasari, which means Christian. Okay. It's another word for Christian in Arabic. So the difference between ISIS and, 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 and Hamas is quite widespread. Like if, if I was to go into ISIS territory, I would become a target. Right. If you were to go into ISIS territory, you would become a target. Whereas there are, you know, Western white people in Gaza, for example, trying to give aid, trying to give uh, 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 supplies, and journalists out there, none of them are being attacked or targeted. Whereas in, you know... This isn't for me to say, you know, uh, uh, nothing Hamas has done is criminal. I'm just pointing out the differences between ISIS and Hamas. And it's quite bizarre for them to try to make this conflation, but it's understandable because somebody in the West who won't understand what Hamas is, maybe has never even heard of Hamas, but they've heard of ISIS because it was all over the news. Once you put those two together, why not bomb the hell out of those people? Especially if you combine that with the narrative that these people elected. You know, we have a lot of people blaming the people of Gaza for electing Hamas. So if Hamas is like, I mean, obviously you and I and most people watching the show know that that's a ridiculous argument to make, especially when half of the population is children. But by their logic, if Hamas is this unadulterated evil, as Joe Biden said, or if it's like ISIS, as Netanyahu is saying, then as you're as you've been saying, Ahmed, it's a lot more palatable to kill civilians because these are civilians who voted in according to these, this narrative who voted in evil i mean that 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 whole argument is just ludicrous because you could turn it of course and say israelis voted in netanyahu therefore any crime that netanyahu does every israeli is to, to be held to account which, right it's a ridiculous argument i'm just saying it is used that we've seen this used yeah, yeah. which makes it a dangerous combination yeah to be honest it's it's, it's quite islamophobic like i find it fascinating um that there was this there was this article, and I and I mentioned it to you earlier by Howard Jacobson in the Guardian, it, in the Observer, which is the bigger version of the Guardian on Sundays, where he tried to um, say anybody who calls what Israelis are doing as uh, genocide or anything like that is purely anti-Semitic because they're comparing them to Nazis. And actually, what I'm saying is 
what what the what Israelis have done is the complete opposite. They've compared everything that any Arab does to ISIS, and that's not the reality. So just like he's suggesting it's anti-Semitic, this is purely Islamophobic, and it's it's quite a, as in I can go through that whole article as to why right. it's such a terrible article, but. It, it reminds me of also the way that it was so easy for the, America to to link Saddam Hussein and uh, Osama bin Laden also because of ignorance about um, the Muslim world and the Arab world, right? Because if anyone knew anything about bin Laden and Hussein, they'd know that these were people who are actually at odds ideologically. One is fundamentalist and one is, uh, is secular. Uh, there are lots of differences. That's just one difference. Yeah, there's a there's actually a fascinating book called Debriefing the President by something Nixon. I forget his first name right now, but he was the CIA agent who debriefed Saddam. So he spent six months with Saddam before Saddam was put to trial, and he said uh, what Saddam's sentiment was: he couldn't understand why he wasn't seen by the Americans as the number one ally against terrorists and uh, and Islamists because he himself was an anti-Islamist. Right. So he they, he couldn't under, like, understand that that relation. So yeah, it, 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 it does have those echoes. I, I remember Donald Rumsfeld within two hours of 9-11 happening, he wrote on a note of paper and that note exists. You can see it, print, like copies of it. He wrote, find a way to link this to Saddam. And if you're telling me that Netanyahu hadn't waited for something like this to happen for him to completely wipe out Israel, it's ludicrous. There have been plans that have been declassified where we can see multiple times Netanyahu and his party were planning on some sort of destruction in, in, in Gaza. And actually, there's this phrase in Hebrew. I don't, I don't know the Hebrew phrase, but the translation is, it's called mowing the lawn. Yeah. And other phrases are called, they call it the Dahir uh, doctrine, where they did the same thing in, in Lebanon, where they completely destroy a city every now and then to make the people hate their government or, or, or the people that are occupying them. And just to keep them under wraps. And actually what's happened is the more we see this death and destruction, it's the more Israel is losing, the more people are growing hate towards Israel as a nation. And I'm not talking about just Gaza itself. This is like a global thing. Right? People are turning around and seeing what's happening in Gaza and feeling uh, 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 that innocent kids just shouldn't be dying. Those like faces of babies, things like that just should not be happening. Right. So tell us more about what you experienced as someone working uh, as a, you were working as a medic then or as a doctor? Or is it, I'm not even sure on that distinction. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. The okay. medic is a doctor, yeah. Oh, it is? Okay. Tell us about working as a doctor and how the treatment, and obviously you're not a defender of, what I thought was interesting about your piece is that you're not a defender of uh, the uh, war on Iraq. But even so, you were able to see the difference between the inhumanity demonstrated by the Israelis vis-a-vis -vis Gaza and the American troops with Iraq. So can you talk about that and, and the impact on the medical field especially? So obviously, like I'm, I completely oppose the Iraq war. I have complete issues. I think George Bush should stand for George and Tony Blair should stand for trial as war criminals. I'm sad Donald Rumsfeld passed away and never saw the face of justice on this in this life, etc. And I kind of came into the fray in Iraq during the war on ISIS. Uh, so my experience is post that. And right. yes, I still have issues with how the Americans conducted that war. Innocent people died that shouldn't have died. Some of the airstrikes were quite impactful. But at the same time, people who were killed in those airstrikes have the right from the UN, from the Iraqi government, and from the Americans to apply for compensation. 
Not okay, people who were killed, people who were, who, whose families, whose families, families yeah. people who were killed. So, right. Yeah. So what, the things that I experienced is, number one, we could provide aid, right? Any aid that was required was given to us. So if you wanted to request, you know, certain medications, et cetera, et cetera, they were able to be delivered towards where you are. And some of that was donated by, I, I remember Kuwait donated a lot of that, a lot of that aid. UAE donated a lot of that aid, et cetera. Whereas in Gaza, None of that aid is allowed in. It's being locked out. Only recently did they start allowing aid in through uh, Rafah, through Egypt. But that's only 10% of what Gaza used to receive before. And imagine the amount of aid that they're needing now, you know, is exponentially more than what they needed back then. So that number, that 10% is, a, is just such a minimal amount where doctors are saying they're having to do operations without anesthesia. There's this one doctor who, who performed an operation, an amputation on his own son without anesthesia and his son then passed away. And there's video of him. He couldn't even mourn privately. in peace. Yeah. Privately. There was a video of him uh, in tears, breaking down after his son passed away. Like these, these thoughts are just harrowing, especially yeah. as a doctor. Like a doctor like in the UK, I would never take a knife to a patient unless I've given some sort of pain relief for that patient. Whereas in Reza, they are doing that on a daily basis. So there's this awful. phrase, there's this acronym, like you know how doctors use acronyms all the time, right? So BIBA, for example, yeah. means brought in by ambulance. Or if you're like a, a fan of friends, you know, when they say your love life's DOA, DOA stands for dead and arrival. Right. Well, they've, there's I'm a, there's laughing a at unique, the friend song, obviously. Yeah. yeah. There's a unique acronym that's unique to Reza only. And it's WCNSF. Right. Wounded child, no surviving family, right? No surviving family. Imagine. Imagine that's what's being created. And Ghassan Abu Sitta says this like phenomenal phrase that like he posted on his social media, who is, he's the plastic surgeon that was in, um, the British plastic surgeon that was in Gaza for a couple of months. And he says this thing that I, I think about almost every night where he says, the loneliest place in the world is being by the bedside of a child that's lost all their family members. And that's just such a harrowing thing to think about. Um, but yeah, going back to to the some of the comparisons that like, I experienced in Iraq, there was a humanitarian corridor that was created. Okay, so Mossad was surrounded by three different areas. They let a pocket out for some of the ISIS fighters to leave to go to the smaller cities, and they had a whole humanitarian corridor which was prote- protected by the Iraqi army and U.S. Air Force, where these IDPs could um, leave Mossad so that the soldiers couldn't going liberate Musa from ISIS occupation. And I remember seeing the faces, and we've got that article that I wrote for The Guardian, of these people who were just so happy that they were able to now live in freedom. That, you know, something simple like shaving their beard became this, like, celebration. And they had this place where they could go and feel that it's a place of safety. But there is no humanitarian corridors in Gaza. Israel has claimed that they've created them, but there are reports that they have been hit by airstrikes during these corridors. Or there's that famous attack of the uh, Jebeliya refugee camp, where at least, and this is, you know, conservative estimates, 50 people died in one airstrike. And I, I, we've got those pictures. I don't yeah. know if we can compare. Which ones do you want to look at right now? The the this uh, the ones I want to look at is the two, uh, there's the IDP camp in Iraq, where kids were there and they were happy. I remember seeing smiling faces. It's not it's not that they're happy of the situation. It's that they're happy that they finally left ISIS to a place of safety. 
And you can see it's the blue, it's the blue tents with the. Yeah. Is this it? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, tell us, tell us this, about this. So this, this, this was, this is on the outskirts of Mosul. And this is the, the humanitarian, humanitarian corridor took you out of uh, uh, Mosul into this camp. And, you know, this is where I was able to practice uh, medicine and some clinics there. Also, I was there as a journalist, so taking stories that, like you saw, one of the stories that, that I published about it. And kids were able to laugh, they were able to play, they didn't have to worry about airstrikes coming and hitting them. Okay, the US plus the coalition were under strict authority to not attack these places. And that's what humanitarian law is. Uh, a, a refugee camp or an IDB camp isn't, should never be a target. And that is part of humanitarian law. And unfortunately, when you look at Gaza and you compare to the Jebeliya refugee camp, which was supposed to be a place of safety, in one airstrike, 50 people, at least 50 people died. And I think that's a conservative estimate. And, you know, they didn't even try to deny that they did this attack. Their claim was a Hamas commander was present at that place. Prove it then. If a Hamas commander was there, prove it then. You can't keep claiming this. And I remember since I was a kid, this Palestine issue has been like on our memories since childhood. And Mark Regev, I remember oh, don't, in Sorry, you're, you're banging your pen, which will be bad for the sorry. podcast. Sorry, I know you're passionate. I banged the table myself. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry, I'm, do, I'm doing the John Stewart thing when yeah. he... Yeah, uh, right. Um, Mark Regev in 2014, I, I still remember this because it's just recurring like over and over again, year by year. In 2014, he was asked about... Uh, uh, Who's the a, uh, of, uh, Regev is a Netanyahu advisor, right? Who used right. to yeah, be yeah, yeah. a... Um, ambassador. Ambassador, yeah. He's Israeli ambassador in the UK. Uh, and then a spokesperson at another point as well. And he's Australian. He, uh, uh, after, in 2014, there was an airstrike that attacked a UN school killing children. And the response was, oh, we think that Hamas was using human shields and kill like, They said, we're going to do an internal investigation. That never amounted to anything. There's never been these internal investigations um, that ever amount to anything to, to, for, for us to see. So the same thing with this Jebeli refugee camp. Yes, you've claimed that there is a uh, a Hamas fighter there. Prove it then. The same thing. The m- Sorry. And, no, and even if you can prove it, that's not okay. You don't get that's to exa- kill yeah. 50 civilians because there's one person yeah. there. Yeah. Exactly. And, that, and that's, what I, guess, I guess, what the difference was with, with, with them in Iraq. The airstrikes were used as a last resort. Okay, so they used to go house to house. And can you put that picture up of the, the, the one that I took with the Iraqi army, where you can see the Iraqi soldiers, they are going house to house clearing this is one i took um in in nano i can't remember which part of Mosul this is in and you know they're going house to house clearing each building of any potential isis combatants of, of non-combatants or you're saying of isis so that they're going there to like you know f- liberate each right I, so okay. as they go they liberate neighborhood by neighborhood okay got it okay so if you're claiming that you're there that you your war isn't against palestinians and it's against only Hamas fighters. Why are you carpet bombing a whole strip and destroying everything? The airstrikes in Iraq had to come in from Iraqi commanders on the ground saying, this is what we want you to strike. This area, this building, because we're stuck. And I remember there are times where the soldiers couldn't, they were like surrounded by area people. They would just have to put in a radio call and then the airstrike would come. And it happened a few times. Yes, ISIS did use hospital as a command center in Iraq, in Mosul. They did use a church as a command center. In fact, in one church, because you know how churches are quite long in their design, um, yeah. they use, because of its length, they used it as a 
driving range, the target range oh, right. for training. And we've got a picture of that church. Yeah. So this and what's ironic disgusting that they would use that for that target in, practice. Ugh. They used that for target practice. They it didn't burn it until they were retreating. So their last thing was to try to turn, set it alight and then and then retreat. The Pope actually visited that when he visited Iraq last year. So yeah, how would they deal with that? So if ISIS is in the church or ISIS is in the hospital, what would they do? They would they would go in by so the the church was liberated by ground. As you can okay, see, so, there is no airstrike. The structure is still right, standing. Right, it's standing. It's standing. Yeah. Compare that to Gaza, where there's a 12th century church there that was attacked in an airstrike where it was being used as a place of refuge, killing both Christians and Muslims who were there to try to seek uh, protection. And it's this, this nice when you thing. sit there comparing these two organizations together, really what I'm thinking in my head is the comparison is that Israel is more comparable to ISIS in this situation. They've forced Gaza's Christian uh, population to be at risk. Just like ISIS caused Mosul's Christian population to be at risk, it's been Israel this time, not Hamas. So that comparison is quite a obscure comparison for me to, to even understand. In terms of the, the, the hospital, it was to try to perform minimal damage to the hospital. So Mosul's main hospital was used as a command center, but it was only one building with that. That was hit by an airstrike. And it was investigated later on, whereas now anyone who tries to do an investigation, be it the ICC or whoever, is immediately called anti-Semitic. Right. So when the ICC said, we're going to investigate potential war crimes in 2019, Netanyahu responded, this is pure anti-Semitism. And Trump responded by saying, I am incredibly concerned about what this is happening. So this, the differences between them is quite vast. The structure in Mosul, in Mosul the hospital is still there. Mm. That hospital that was hit by an airstrike is still there and is still functioning, and there are beds there and patients there. Now you contrast that with Gaza, and it's just sickening to think that the whole of North Gaza has no functioning hospitals anymore, and the South, the same thing is happening. And one phrase that I came across described by Vestana Wasita is he described it as a self-sustaining catastrophe. Because now imagine, you've killed everybody you know, in airstrikes. But imagine you have a heart attack now or a stroke or whatever it is and you need emergency care for it. It's actually impossible to receive that anymore. So even if you're not being killed by airstrikes, yeah. even normal conditions, which normally would be life, could be treated, you're, be, you're being murdered for anyway. So it's this insane, I guess, unjust, despicable form of torture yeah. uh, that, that that's being created and you can claim to be the most moral army in the world and all these words and you can claim that you're giving warning but when gazans are left to this like 20 percent strip that they can now live in it's no, that's no longer the case you've done everything that you've claimed to do and yeah. you know when when someone like netanyahu is calling for amalek to be performed which is the jewish biblical story of the complete destruction regardless of the age or gender of, of a whole population in terms of the protection of the Jewish people. Or when um, one of the Israeli ministers, uh, Amakai Eliyahu, says that he wants to nuke Gaza as a potential option. You are actually making a statement for a genocide. That's what you are doing. Like, it's not something that's hidden. They're telling us what they want to do. And we need to, like, wake up and listen. And that's the main differences between, like, you know, ISIS and Hamas and things like that. To date, ISIS has only killed... Not only, every single death is, is, is a horrible death, but ISIS has killed 33,000 people. 
to date, which is a large number of people, but and that's over five years. Within two months, Israel has killed over 15,000 people, majority of whom are children, and that's just in two months. And it's a shocking number to think about. Like we are seeing these faces of these people over and over again. I don't know if you saw that 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 video of that that grandfather carrying his his yes. his, uh, his his granddaughter Reem, yeah. where he says, "This is the soul of my soul." Like these videos are just going to live with us forever. Yeah. And now, if you think, you know that that WCNSF yeah. thing, that kid who now no longer has a family, no longer has a le- a leg to to walk on, whatever it is. What are they going to grow up to think in reality? That you know, peace with Israel is possible. The perpetrators of those who murdered all of my family and friends and whoever it is. It's just the way that we, as a Western powers, have backed Israel to act with impunity is just allowing this stuff to happen more and more and more. And they've kind of, they started off, you know, they were testing the waters. You know, let's prop, drop a little airstrike at the basement of the hospital. Let's do this. And then now they're like, let's just completely annihilate the whole hospital. If you can explain to me why bombing a ward that's dedicated to pediatric oncology patients, so pediatric cancer patients, is necessary, then I'm happy to listen. But I don't think there is an explanation. Right. Well, you mentioned Mark Regev a few times, and I actually wanted to show this. So this is a clip of Mark Regev, who was on... Jake Tapper show and Jake Tapper is asking him about family members of a CNN colleague who were killed in Gaza. And as people probably know, Jake Tapper is not a critic of Israel. And here is this exchange between the two of them. The IDF really has done everything that is humanly possible to try to safeguard innocent civilians. It's very hard to believe that, especially on a day when one of our producers lost nine members of his family, nine members of his family who are not members of Hamas, not members of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, not members of any group, just nine people just trying to live their lives. First of all, I, I extend my sorrow to him and my sympathies. But if I saw your report correctly, and, and please correct me if I say something wrong, that happened in northern Gaza? Uh, in Gaza City, where a month ago we already asked all the civilians to leave. And most of them did. If there was like 1,200,000 people there, there was only a, a couple of tens of thousands left. And one has to ask, yes, they had an ample opportunity to leave. I'm, I'm, I don't know what happened. I don't have the specific circumstances. I know there's deadly combat going on now in the north, still between these IDF and and and, and Hamas terrorists, yes? And we don't want to see anyone caught up in the crossfire, but why didn't they heed the advice and oh, leave the blame. area? You, you had... can't blame them. There's now I fighting, don't blame them. But you can't, there's fighting in the South now. Where, where are, I mean, I've been asking this since October 7th. Where are these people supposed to go? So, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous like, to think like you're, you're blaming the victim. And yeah. victim blaming is just, it's just such a horrible thing to think about. Imagine Hamas is like, we've been telling you for years that that's our, Tel Aviv is our territory. Yafa is ours. We've told you to leave. You didn't leave. It's your it's your yeah. fault that we came and attacked you. It's this ludicrous like concept. And actually, like this is part of what Israel's game is to 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 try to act as if this, these are pure enemies, and it's what allows them to act with impunity. So they, on one end, it's like e- eating their cake and like having their cake and eating it at the same time. So on one end, they say that Palestine is not someone that they need to look after. So therefore, they don't need to provide water, they don't need to provide electricity, et cetera, et cetera, because they're their own independent people. And then at the same time, they don't allow them to be a state. 
So then when they say Palestine tries to take them to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, they're like, oh, but you're not a state. So it's like trying to have their cake and eat it at the same time. And that's what puts this predicament in for, for, for Palestinians to turn around and say they didn't leave. Or Mark Rogev in another interview with, with Mehdi Hassan, after that interview, which he, he lost his job, he claimed that those, like, did those babies even die? And there's this whole thing about Pallywood that's yeah. been going around. Which is, um, pal- which is what Palestinian, ho- Palestine, Palestinian Hollywood. Palestinian Hollywood, yeah, that, 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 that the Israelis have been trying to pull out. I don't know if you saw Ophir Gendelman, put, mm-hmm. who's one of the Israeli ministers, put a, v- a tweet out saying, look at this as evidence of Palestinian Hollywood. And it's actually behind uh, behind the scenes of a, an award-winning Lebanese short film. Ah, uh, right, right. Pretending that that was, as, pretending that that was being presented as as uh, real Hollywood. footage. Yeah, yeah, right. as, real footage, as if somebody was there and they're putting makeup on babies dying right. and things like that. Right. But actually, like, wh- why should we take any of what Israel says to be fact? Right. Like, they've lied so many times, yep. they've manipulated the media so many times, there's that that nurse that you know claimed to be a Palestinian yeah, nurse, for really... example, who's an Israeli actress. Yeah. That there was there's the whole calendar thing where you know the Israeli IDF spokesman went into Shifa Hospital and was like, "Look, this is evidence of Hamas," and actually he just pointed towards a calendar. And this goes back years. Right. There's Shireen Abu Akla when she was murdered by the IDF, and they said that she was killed by uh, yeah. Palestinian and militants. They and they provided fake later, video. They provided video. Exactly. And then eventually they admitted it was them. There's James Miller, 2003. There's the, I don't know if you remember back in 2006, there was the um, Iqana ambulance hoax where they claimed there was an ambulance that the, the that in Lebanon where the Israeli airstrikes struck, I think it was two ambulances, which is a clear war crime. And then they turned around and said, oh, it's a hoax. Those, those video footage are all fake and whatever. And then years later, they turned around and said, actually, oh, no, no, that is something that we did. They also um, recently, the Jerusalem Post published a story about dead babies being uh, dolls. And then they had yes. to retract that. But of course, when they tweeted out that it was wrong, they didn't mention which story it was. And yes. the damage, yeah, of yeah. course, had already been done. To clarify, this, not just the, uh, this was the, um, the deputy mayor of Jerusalem said it as well. Wow. Okay. So not just the Jerusalem Post. Oh, that's right. Uh, Brad, you wanted to make a point. Yeah, sorry. Um, I had just pulled up, speaking of all of these uh, horrible actions by the uh, Israeli government and them, you know, saying that they were targeting Hamas and they're being as careful as possible, blah, blah, blah. Um, I had just come upon this from, uh, I believe it was four days ago. Uh, This was a post showing a surgical strike where the Israeli Air Force took out the fourth floor and only the fourth floor of a high-end residential building saying that they were targeting a senior Hamas official. But if you look at some of the pictures here, you can see they had the ability to literally just take out a piece of one middle floor of this building and nothing else. Which I, to me, but the biggest takeaway there to me was then I just reflected upon the images we showed earlier of massive craters where a refugee camp used to be or a hospital uh, and them claiming they just had to do it that way. I just seems like this would call that into question. Even then, even then, would you, that, that, yes. that structure is no longer livable. Like we sort like, you know, you can say nine 11, it just hit the top floor of the thing, but the whole building collapsed. Right. So th- sure, this is right. not a livable structure anymore. The people have to now escape. They've got nowhere to go. 
There was no reason Correct. to destroy a, a whole neighborhood's worth of people's life for one right. potential, oh, potential, like not even confirmed, yeah. potential right. Hamas commander. Right. No, a- absolutely. And um, you may be able to speak to this, um, but it's a thought that I've had too. Like, is anyone ever going to ask the question, like, in terms of, whether or not these things were justified. It seems like the Israeli government basically kind of um, just went ahead and did it. And then what do they say? Like ask for forgiveness later rather than permission. Like they did some of like some of the most horrible things many people have ever seen, you know, regarding, for example, like leveling hospitals full of uh, civilians, you know, and uh, babies dying in the NICU. And then that was all done under the pretense, according to them, of, you know, they had these reasons, but they didn't provide that proof beforehand. And then afterward, like, are we just going to move past the fact that they, to do something like that, the level required of proof should be so high that, that they didn't clear that beforehand, which is alarming but that they haven't cleared it after that either. I, I want to use an analogy that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently. Now, Im- mm. imagine I'm a surgeon and a patient comes mm-hmm. into the hospital and I'm like, I've got some doubt that you may have cancer somewhere in your stomach. And I take you to theater and with no evidence. I've done no scans, no imaging. And I take you to theater and I open up your abdomen and I take out everything inside. You end up dying on the table. Okay. Right. If that just happens once, you're probably going to be struck off the medical register, never allowed to practice again. Yeah. But to do it again and again and again and again, and it's like, oh, we bombed this hospital. We bombed El Auda hospital because there's a Hamas fighter. Oh, actually, there isn't one. We bombed the Shifa hospital. Oh, there isn't one. We bombed the Indonesia hospital. Oh, there isn't yeah. one. Now, do it now again it's and again. Next now it's yeah. no longer that somebody is doing a, you know, a cancer treatment. You're now actually performing mass genocide that's that that is what the 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 big difference is so you have to be held to account at some point but the issue is and this is something that i wrote about on on the weekend that if someone like henry kissinger can go away with killing three to four million people in six years or seven years in office do i ever think that israel is ever going to be held to account i that's why like you said you know ask for forgiveness after you've done the attack that's and that's what they're playing at yeah and it's it's really hard to me to not, I, I agree with everything that you're saying, and and I feel like yeah, just going by reality, that is the case. But when I start thinking about that stuff, boy, do I find it hard to not succumb to just cynicism and nihilism. Like, what's you know, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you have any advice on. That. I mean, I, if, <laughs> if I'm honest with you, like if if. Like, uh, I believe in God. I believe in an afterlife, yeah. right? And I think that's the, yeah. the only thing that's giving us any semblance of, 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 of any kind of patience is to that to believe that there is some sort of justice in the afterlife. Uh-huh. And I, I feel like with this happening, if 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 there wasn't, if I didn't believe in a God, this would make me believe in a God out of almost necessity, because I think yeah. otherwise it's pure nihilism. I'm still I'm agnostic, yeah. Yeah. but I'll try to I'll try. I I do wish I believed in something, but. But I mean, because it just made me think of that because I a thought the other day I was having was, I mean, and, and I, as I said to you earlier, Ahmed, I think that it's reflecting on my privilege that I'm saying it now because there's 
many instances that would have merited me saying this uh, where there wasn't the attention on it in the past. But I was just thinking, you know, if there's no accountability, like real accountability for this. Uh, well, what? of course there won't what, be. What reason? There, there never has what, been. But then, but, then, but then what reason would anyone in the world have to take seriously international law? They don't. We That's don't. the thing. We don't. Like, you, yeah. you, if, if you look at the ICC, as in, you can bring up the website and look at the indictments. Okay, There's a list of everyone who's been indicted. Every mm. single person on that list is African. Are a couple, yeah. a couple of Russians dotted in between Vladimir Putin, it, right? for example, etc. And he's chilling as yeah. you know ruler of our entire nation still. So there's not even yeah. that indictment doesn't. That's mean why anything. Norman Finkelstein calls it the International Caucasian Court. Mm. No, what about what? Do you have any thoughts? Is is the entity the ICJ? Well, we're gonna. Uh, well, we can talk about that. With I don't want to get ahead of it because our next guest okay, actually right. is very well primed thank, to thank position you. to talk about that. And we actually, I'm, we're going to bring um, Muin Rabani on soon, but final words from you, any final insights from you, Ahmed, um, about yeah, anything that you want to share? Because this has been great. I think, like, we, we need to, you know, as much as we say, hold Israel to account, it's not, that's not just the, like, what's happened in the last two months isn't something that's born out of nothing. This has been decades and decades of brutal occupation and siege and dehumanization and stealing of people's lands that that needs to be corrected so it's not just you know that we demand compensation and you know the freedom of uh, palestinians etc it's to have all of those things that they've done over the last decades reversed because if that doesn't happen then we're going to see this conflict just keep spiraling and spiraling uh, over and over again yeah. and unfortunately as westerners like a lot of people have opted to side with some of the crimes that Israel has been doing because they believed in that dehumanization that we've been fed. You know, the, the stories like 40 beheaded babies when uh, there was no evidence for that. And then this happened and, and that and happened. Biden and Biden said it creates, twice. He didn't say it just uh, yeah, once. Yeah. He said it twice. Twice. After literally. walking it back the first time, he had to walk it back. But he's so comfortable lying. And the media is such a joke that he felt comfortable saying it again after he had to walk it back. And it's there. It's headline. Those headlines aren't retracted. The damage has been done. Right. And 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 it makes it acceptable for people to be like, yeah, you know what? Screw those Palestinians. And then when somebody says free Palestine is a call for genocide or going on those marches is a, is a hate crime. Ima imagine the level that you have to kind of lie to yourself to to manipulate a whole population to have that. You know, no Noam Chomsky has that great book, um, manufacturing consent. Manufacturing consent, and this is part of it. Like to to have people believe. That those people going on those marches are calling for hate crimes or calling for crimes of genocide against Jews around the world is what is allowed for us to see what's happening in Palestine and turn a blind eye to it. That's one of the things that you know breaks my heart. You go around, for me currently, I'm in London, walk the streets of London and see how people are living as if nothing is happening. And you just have to go on the internet overnight to see that there are people who are just struggling to even breathe. George Floyd was, you know, one one man's death created a whole wave of movements for us to open our eyes. We're now watching a whole genocide being live streamed and we're not able to achieve anything. I remember like I used to have this real faith in storytelling and it's part of the reason why I got into journalism is that a single image can change the world. And, you know, if you remember like the napalm girl yeah. image photograph, that was one of the images that led to the end of the Vietnam War because it changed public perception about it. There was the um, 
Kevin Carter picture in uh, the famine in Somalia where there's a, a vulture and a little baby girl. That changed everyone's opinion about the famine and they wanted to, to, you know, people started to donate and, you know, world aid and gift aid and all that start, stuff started happening. There's the, the, the picture of Ayan Kursi that changed everyone's opinion about refugees, the, right. the dead baby, the dead boy on, on the shores of Greece. And that changed everyone's views on refugees. But now we're seeing image after image that keeps breaking our hearts. And the only question that I can ever think about is how many times can our hearts break? And unfortunately, the next day, it's something worse. And we still ignore it. And nothing happens to it. And I don't know, we're stuck in this world where almost like the, 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 the victim is a person to blame. Right, like Mark Regev did. Like Mark Regev did. Yeah. Well, Ahmed, thank you so much. And please come back on because you always have so many great pieces. We didn't even get the chance to talk about Kissinger, but we'll do that later on because we obviously had enough to talk about without Kissinger. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. And uh, we will link to your pieces. Thank you so much. And follow Ahmed on Twitter. Okay, we are so... Thank you guys so much for joining. I mean, for watching, for staying with us because this show, uh, it was amazing to speak to Ahmed. It always is. And we have our next guest here. So excited to talk to him. Muin Rabani, a researcher and analyst specializing in the contemporary Middle East. He's previously served as principal political affairs officer with the office of the UN Special Envoy for Syria, head of Middle East with Crisis Management Initiative, and senior Middle East analyst and special advisor on Israel-Palestine with the International Crisis Group. Rabani has published, presented, and commented widely on Middle East issues, including for most major global media. So welcome, Muin Rabani. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So um, I wanted to uh, ask you, there, there's so much happening right now, and you keep a very good uh, kind of what we used to call blog uh, at Jadalia uh, at the website, which is, a, of course, um, an entity that Nora Erekat, who's been on the show a bunch, is also affiliated with. What is the latest uh, that's happening that you want to talk about before I ask some particular questions? Anything that you that that's on your mind? Anything that, that you just discovered today um, that was just revealed today that you want to talk about? Well, um, I, I think the big story now, of course, is that Israel is now focusing its onslaught on the Gaza Strip, uh, very much on on the middle area and the south. Of the Gaza Strip, particularly Khan Yunus, where we're now being told to believe that the entire Hamas leadership has relocated to after their daring escape from the basement of uh, of the Al Shifa Hospital in um, Gaza City. And um, every morning, I wake up and I turn on various news programs, and invariably, with very few exceptions, actually, the headline is yesterday or this morning witnessed the most intensive Israeli bombings since October 7th. And that was certainly the case today, according to the various reporters on the ground in, um, in the Gaza Strip. The other observation I would make is that Israel today announced that seven officers and soldiers were killed yesterday and almost all of them were killed in the northern Gaza Strip. In some cases, in towns immediately across from the boundary between Israel and the Gaza Strip. In other words, 
areas that Israel entered on the first day of its ground operation and claims to have controlled since then, it's still intensively bombing those areas as well. So on the one hand, that means that Israel is not really progressing very successfully. And it also means that Israel appears determined to continue until it either achieves something of significance or until a halt is called to its onslaught. And the point I've been making is that the decision to end this mass murder and mass destruction, this process that has turned the Gaza Strip into a killing field, is not an Israeli decision ultimately, it's an American decision. Because one thing this crisis has revealed from the outset, and it's something that you hear continually repeated, uh, particularly by Israeli journalists and analysts, is that Israel is essentially dependent on the United States. And we've seen how dependent it is militarily for its supply for the bombs that are killing all these people, it's dependent on the U.S. politically for the support it gets from the U.S. Congress and so on. And it's also dependent on the U.S. diplomatically for using its veto power in the U.N. Security Council, for throwing its weight around and bullying other countries, whether friend or foe, to try to fall into line and not obstruct uh, Israel's continual campaign against uh, the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip. So you have said, uh, I thought you had a, a an interesting way of describing various players in this game. You wrote, with respect to the impact of this crisis on U.S. interests in the region and beyond, and particularly the question of regional escalation, Biden doesn't care, Blinken doesn't know, and Burns and Austin are shitting bricks. So tell us a little bit more about the different positions in which these players yes. find themselves. Well, you know, U.S. journalists and analysts always like to look at the leadership of other countries in terms of different and rival factions and their rising and falling influence. I think that's a perfectly legitimate way to look at elites, but it's also perfectly legitimate to use that same frame of analysis for the governing elite in the United States. And my sense, again, I'm not a Washington insider and so on, but looking at their public statements and their policy positions, and in Lincoln's case, trying to determine what, if anything, is between his ears, I've come to the conclusion that there are really three positions. One poll is represented by Biden, who may well recognize the threats that this crisis in the Middle East poses to U.S. influence, to U.S. interests, not only in the Middle East, but also globally, but he essentially doesn't care. He either thinks that supporting Israel is more important than any of these costs that may be imposed on the U.S., or perhaps he has reached the point, like a number of other American officials, not so much of putting Israeli interests before American interests. I think there are very few people who actually do that, particularly at the senior level, but seeing no distinction between the two. In other words, what's good for Israel is good for the United States. What's bad for the United States is bad for Israel. And so they also see this crisis not only 
in the context of it being one between Israel and the Palestinians, but that the outcome will reflect positively or negatively on the U.S., both regionally and geopolitically. Blinken, by contrast, strikes me as something of a clueless airhead, and I don't think he understands one way or the other what's going on. I mean, this is someone who, on his first trip to the region, actually tried to sell the Israeli proposal of ethnically cleansing the Gaza Strip to pro-Western Arab governments. And the impression one gets is that he went into the room, began his conversations with these leaders, and genuinely expected them to respond by, what a great idea, how can we help you help our Israeli friends? You know, I think there's probably some kind of secret Russian-Chinese campaign to get Blinken out to the region as often as possible, because every time the guy opens his mouth, he's undermining the U.S. reputation in the Middle East. I mean, this is a guy who met with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah, and in his view, as an attempt to lift his stature among his own people, publicly thanked him for his efforts to maintain common stability in the West Bank. I mean, it's, it's that bad. And then you have a third faction, which I think is particularly, particularly identified with CIA Director William Burns, someone who knows and understands um, the region well. And I suspect also Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, but certainly much of the top brass in the Pentagon. And their main concern is twofold. On the one hand, the longer this conflict goes on, the greater the risk that there will be serious threats to the stability and security of pro-Western governments in the region. And secondly, that the longer this goes on, the greater the level of regional escalation. I mean, we already are seeing what's happening off the coast of Yemen, on the Israeli-Lebanese border, and so on, and the risks of a regional conflagration, far in excess of what we've already seen, is very real. We've seen already attacks on U.S. Uh, military bases in Syria and Iraq, and their main concern, I think, is to find a way to prevent this from escalating further because Biden has already committed the U.S. to getting directly involved if there's a war between Israel and Lebanon. Not the greatest thing to do when you're in an election year and already sagging uh, in the polls. And then you have an extreme, unlikely, but certainly possible scenario of a direct confrontation between the U.S. and Iran, which I think some Israeli leaders see this as an opportunity to involve the U.S. directly to fight their own conflicts. So, you know, you do have these different factions and different priorities and different interests. And the way I see it is when you start hearing, you know, Samantha Power showing up with 36,000 pounds of humanitarian aid in Egypt to send to Gaza, you know, same weight as just 18, 2,000 pound bombs that the U.S. has been supplying to Israel. And when you hear all these various officials talking about the need to reduce uh, civilian casualties, I mean, that we can all take with a grain of salt. If the mass slaughter of Palestinians, Palestinian civilians, Palestinian children, if that really was an issue, 
we would have, you know, something would have been done several months or at least several weeks ago. I think this is kind of a cosmetic presentation of the real issue, which is to what extent should the United States continue supporting Israel, irrespective of the risks of greater regional escalation, versus to what extent should we start looking for an off-ramp, we, which I mean from the perspective of U.S. officials, in order to diminish the risk of further damage. So I'm going to ask you more questions about Hamas, about other international questions about Hezbollah, because I've heard you talk about Hamas and some really, I think, interesting insights and uh, insights into what they did and why they did it. But I also want to talk about something that's big in the news uh, this week. So let's go to a clip of Matt Miller, Biden spokesperson Matt Miller, being asked. We have to. We do have to. Yeah. Trigger warning. Yeah. But here, here he is. He's he's being asked. We can play. Actually, let's play the longer clip where he's asked about alleged uh, sexual violence. Let's play this longer clip where he's asked by a, a journalist. And then let's watch his response to this journalist. And then we're going to watch another journalist ask him to explain himself. Your answer um, to the question about the reports of a rape of Israeli women by Hamas and use of sexual violence as a war crime, as a crime, as a weapon of war. Um, you said we've seen Hamas commit atrocities. We obviously condemn atrocities, but you didn't use the words rape or sexual violence. And I'm wondering if there's a reason for that, or not not a, not a more explicit condemnation of rape. Uh, only, look, um, only because we haven't made an independent assessment uh, our own. We've obviously seen the reports that Hamas has committed sexual violence. They've committed rape. Um, we have no reason at all to doubt those reports. Um, uh, when you look at all the atrocities that Hamas uh, carried out on October 7th and the atrocities that they have carried uh, out since, the fact that they continue to hold women hostages, the fact that they continue to hold children hostages, the fact that it seems one of the reasons they don't want to turn women over that they've been holding hostage and the reason this pause fell apart is they don't want those women to be able to talk about what happened to them during their time in custody. Um, certainly, there is very uh, little that I would put beyond Hamas when it comes to its treatment of civilians and particularly its treatment uh, of women. Okay, so that's the exchange. Uh, do you want to react to that or should we go to the the Matt Lee reaction to that? Um, well, I, I would just say that it's pretty clear from Matthew Miller's statement that in his view, these women are basically being held as sexual slaves by Hamas and that, that is a reason that it's um, refusing to conduct a further exchange with Israel that would lead to their release. Right. That's definitely what he's implying, right? Um, mm. So now let's see where this assessment uh, comes from. So thank God for people like Matt Lee, journalist Matt Lee. I can't believe he still gets called on, honestly. Whenever he gets called on, I'm like, what are you doing? Thank you, but what are you doing? So let's hear Matt Lee ask Matt Miller what he's talking about, basically. You have no reason to doubt any reports that, that rape was used as uh, sexual uh, sexual violence was used by Hamas. Uh, you said the fact that they, meaning Hamas, continue to hold women hostages, okay, that is a fact. The fact that they continue to hold children hostages, that is also a fact. But then you said the fact that it seems one of the reasons they don't want to turn women over that they've been holding hostage and the reason that the pause fell apart is that they don't want those women to be able to talk about what happened to them during their time in 
uh, captivity. Um, the fact that it seems, Maybe, why I'll, do you, I'll, is, that, is this I'll just conjecture I'll, on your part, I'll, or, I'll, or I'll, do you know, do you, do you have very good reason to believe, evidence to, to believe that Hamas is deliberately continuing to hold on to female hostages because they're concerned that they will speak about atrocities that were that they were subjected to. So I will accept the edit, not fact, seems is a better way to say it, but let me let me answer the let me an answer the question. Um, the humanitarian pause, which resulted in uh, an a release of hostages, was negotiated with some very clear terms, and that was that children and women would be the first priority to be released. Um, near the end of that pause, last Wednesday, Thursday, when we were getting towards the end, uh, mm -hmm. Hamas was still holding on to women mm -hmm. that should have been the next to be released. They refused to release them. Right. Uh, they broke the deal. Came up with excuses why, ultimately, I don't think any of those excuses were credible, and I shouldn't get into any of them here. Um, but certainly one of the, the, the reasons that a number of people believe they refused to release them is they didn't want people to hear what those women would have to say publicly. Well, I, don't, I, 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 I won't say fact because I don't know it for a fact. Oh, okay, it's, but when you without, say a number of people I, believe. I, 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 I just, let, me, let me just say. People in that, the U.S. government? I, I, let, me, let me just finish my answer. Um, we have seen... Hamas commit all kinds of atrocities. Look, I, 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 no, I'm, I'm a little Matt, bit concerned I, I, that you're I, trying to go. I, I, I am not I, suggesting I, that these things did not happen, I, and I am not suggesting that and what I, Matt, you suggest I just, is the reason be, for not releasing the, the remaining female hostages is, is wrong. I just want to know. I just want to be very sensitive in my language. Have any evidence to suggest that that is what, what it is, or is it just I want to be very conjecture. sensitive in my language when talking about people that continue to be held hostage that have... Uh, families on the outside. Um, I will. So I will. What I will say is, we know Hamas has committed atrocities. I we know they. I, 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 hold on. They they continue to hold women. Yeah. They were going to release these women, and then suddenly, at the last point, reneged on the deal, and were never able to provide a credible reason why. We hope that they will change their mind and, and release okay. those women. So, but but, but you seen. don't know though, for certain that the that that the or a reason for them reneging on the deal and not releasing them is because they're worried about uh, them speaking about So I'm not able to speak endured. with a definitive assessment that that is the case. Um, uh, we would like to see them release the hostages yeah. so they could talk about whatever treatment or mistreatment they had undergone. Sorry, Matt. Let me, I have got... Okay, and then, of course, he doesn't call on Saeed because I'm sure Saeed would have another question that was actually requiring him to say something of substance. So... He went from saying that it is because of the mistreatment or the so-called alleged rape of women that Hamas does not want to release prisoners. I mean, does not want to release, release the women because they will talk about what happened to them. That's why he went from saying that to saying, well, that that what that's what it looks like. It is at least making it like, well, all of a sudden they're not releasing women as if he went from A to B with some kind of logic. So what's your response to that? Well, I think, first of all, this exchange proves very clearly that in Washington, you can make it up as you go along and you can say whatever you want, provided that it panders to the official narrative of power. I mean, the only verifiable fact in Matthew Miller's entire story is that he has a wild and, and, and rather sick imagination. Other than that, there are no facts. It's purely 
conjecture. There's some reason to doubt his lurid allegations, and that's because he has left out part of the story. He said at one point that Hamas has excuses that I won't get into. So if I can just back up a bit and explain what happened. Uh, before Israel, with full U.S. support, launched its ground operations into the Gaza Strip, Hamas offered to Israel two alternatives. One was named All for All, by which Hamas and other Palestinian organizations in the Gaza Strip would release all of the captives and hostages that they held in exchange for Israel releasing all Palestinian prisoners in the Israeli prison system. And Hamas at the time said, we can do that or we can do the following, that we can divide the captives and hostages into different categories, namely civilian women and children. I think the next was um, men and boys who are either too young or too old to serve in the Israeli military and serving military personnel. And each category will have a different formula for exchange. The response of the US and Israel was, actually, we're here to eradicate you, not to negotiate with you. And the ground offensive commenced. It failed to retrieve even a single captive from the Gaza Strip. The negotiations conducted between the US and Israel on the one hand, and Hamas on the other hand, through the good offices of Qatar in Egypt, commenced. And they agreed, ultimately, on a formula whereby Hamas or the Palestinians would release women and children civilian captives, and Israel in exchange would release three women and or children for every captive released by the Palestinians from the Israeli prison system. Sorry, it's a bit complex, but I... No, no. That formula lasted until the last day of the truce. There are a number of reasons that the truce collapsed, but one was that the Americans and the Israelis claim that Hamas refused to re release additional women in their custody. The response from Hamas was, we do have additional women in our custody, but they're not civilians. These are not hostages. These are prisoners of war who were captured in uniform from the military and intelligence bases that we overran on October 7th. And as we told you at the outset, we are not going to release military captives under the same arrangement that we agreed for the release of civilians. Now, I'm not in a position to judge who's right and who's wrong, except to say that lists of names were exchanged. So the names of these women are known, and it probably doesn't require a degree in rocket science to determine whether they are indeed civilians, as Israel and the United States claim, or whether they're serving military personnel, as the Palestinians claim. There's another minor issue, which consists of children. And the story that I've heard, again, I can't verify it, is that Hamas said it did still have three, I believe, Israeli children in custody, that these children were killed in Israeli bombings of the Gaza Strip after October 7th, and it offered to include them in the exchange and that the response from uh, the Israelis and the Americans is that we're not 
going to release Palestinian prisoners under the same formula for basically dead rather than live children. So that's the background here. And Matthew Miller could have very easily said, because Hamas has, and, and Islamic Jihad have been making this claim in public, Matthew Miller could have very easily said, we have insisted that um, there are additional civilian women being held captive in the Gaza Strip. Hamas is making false claims that these are serving military personnel and therefore fall outside the agreement reached with them. Well, here is a proof that they are civilians and not military. But instead, you know, he treated us to these lurid stories that um, basically originate in his imagination rather than in any verifiable fact or reality. Well, we, we have been hearing people talk about these reports of sexual violence, and it does seem rather coordinated. Jake Tapper did a story on it. Then Dana Bash referred to it. Another woman on CNN whose name escapes me, I think something like Biana, has been not just mentioning it on their shows, but they've been tweeting about it. They demanded that Pramila Jayapal condemn it, which she did on this program. And I thought something was interesting. I actually tweeted this out because... Right away, there was a Vox article. If we just go to this tweet, I think I tweeted something like, it's cool to watch uh, atrocity propaganda and manufacturing of consent happening in real time. Brad, do you have that that tweet? Oh, you don't have it. Okay, sorry. One second. Well, well, you, you, you can speak to it, but, I, but it did travel right. in real time, this claim. Yeah. Well, my response would be to say um, uh, that rape during wartime um, is an established fact. Yes. Just as much as atrocity propaganda is an established fact. What I will say about this, before making any judgment about what happened on October 7th, is that these reports all relate to events that took place on October 7th. We've, of course, been hearing about them since then, but I do find it somewhat curious, and if I may say so suspicious, that it is in early December when the Israeli attack on the Gaza Strip, and now its attack on what was supposedly the safe haven of the southern Gaza Strip, when that is reaching a crescendo, all of a sudden we're being told what you really should be focusing on the sexual violence on October 7th. It almost seems, and I suspect that it is, part of a coordinated propaganda campaign to divert our attention from what is happening today um, to things that happened on October 7th. And I'm perfectly prepared to believe that terrible things did happen on October 7th. So point I'm making is not to seek to in any way deny things that can certainly still be established about October 7th, but to raise questions about why that is all of a sudden supposed to dominate our discussion of this crisis now at a time when the Israeli onslaught on the Gaza Strip is reaching a crescendo with unprecedented numbers of women, by the way, not being raped, but being blown to smithereens. Right. Right. Yeah. Again, I think it's what you said. I, I very much agree with. I mean, I'm not saying that atrocities, including rape, didn't happen. I don't know. But what I do know is that it's being talked about as a systemic. 
I do think, given the severity of the allegations, it needs a serious and independent allegation. It may end up um, investigation. Uh, their conclusions, but I also feel um, that I am entirely entitled to take any and every statement that comes from Israeli officials with a huge helping of kosher assault. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. Bye.